Well, good morning, Parkview. It is uh, my privilege to introduce our guest uh, preacher this morning for the past five years or so in the summer in July. Bob Russell has come to join us. Bob and Judy are good friends of Pastor Tim and Denise and good friends of this church and we're always blessed when he comes. Bob is the former senior minister at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, he retired in 2006, but he is far from retired. If you check out his website, he's out every weekend preaching and teaching at churches, encouraging churches and pastors and their members. And, and we just love what he's doing in ministry. Um, we are always encouraged when he's here. Bob and the team at Southeast has played a huge role in what Parkview does here and in turning this church uh, many years back towards being a church that's always seeking people that do not know the Lord. So we're very thankful for them. And would you please help me welcome Bob Russell. Well, good morning. I enjoy coming to Parkview. There's a special vitality and a spirit of joy in this place that is really contagious. So thank you for the invitation to come back. I have a deep respect for your preacher, as does our whole brotherhood. You know, Tim has been asked to serve as the president of the North American Christian Convention this coming year, our national convention. It's a huge responsibility, and I know he'll do a great job, but I thank you for sharing him uh, with us. But, you know, it's kind of risky to have an old preacher come back. I don't know how many years you're going to invite me back. I turned 70 in two months. And some things happen as you get older. I heard the other day about a guy 90 years old who played golf, and he came home complaining to his wife, said, you know, I can still hit the ball a long way, but I just can't see where it goes anymore. She said, well, I'm 89, and I still see well. I'll go with you, and I'll spot the ball for you. So the next day they went. He hit the ball on the first tee, hit it really well. And he said to her, do you see it? Do you see it? She said, sure, I see it. He said, where, where is it? She said, I can't remember. <laughs> so I don't know how many years I'll be invited back, but I'm, I'm glad to be with you. Tim, in preparation for a series that he's beginning next weekend, asked me to preach on why I love the church. I'm really glad to do that because I do love the church, and this is such an important subject. Because there is an increasing number of people out there who don't love the church anymore. They despise the church. There are some politicians that don't like the church because we don't pay taxes. There are some individuals who were wounded by a person in the church years ago, so they just paint all of you with the same brush and say the church is full of hypocrites and they wouldn't darken the door of your church. I think there are a lot of people in the world who don't like the church because they think we're too judgmental. We're trying to impose our values on others. We're trying to restrict their freedom. I also think there are a lot of people who don't know much about the church, but they don't like it because they've been influenced by negative media stereotypes. You know, when you go to the movies or watch a television program, somebody who is a Christian and goes to church is hardly ever portrayed in a favorable light. They're almost always a rank hypocrite or a fun-hating legalist. But it's not just the people on the outside of the church that are critical of the church. The church is really being disparaged from within today. If you've read much of Christian literature, especially the emerging church literature in the last 15 years, you know the church is under attack from within for being irrelevant and too judgmental and homophobic and not reaching the culture. 
Donald Miller, in his book, Blue Like Jazz, says that he grew up in the church, but he's discovered more authentic fellowship in a commune than a church. And he goes around the country apologizing for the church. And let's be honest, some of the criticism is valid because the church is made up of imperfect people like you and like me. But I'm going to be really honest with you. I am sick and tired of people trashing the church of Jesus Christ. And I want to talk to you today about what's good about the church, what's right about the church. You know, you can focus on the 5% that's wrong with your mate, and you can make your marriage miserable. The Bible says we ought to think about the things that are good and honest and pure. So this morning, let's think about what's right about the church, why we love the church. And I hope when you leave today, you'll feel better about being a part of Parkview Christian Church, and you'll be better equipped to defend it when necessary. If you have a Bible with you, would you turn to the book of Matthew, the 16th chapter, where Jesus made it clear that he did intend, indeed, to build a church. Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by man but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, right here is one reason I love the church. I love the church because I love its founder. Jesus said, I will build my church. He said, Peter, on this rock, on this truth, that I am the Messiah. I'm going to build my church. I have some degree of affection for this old wallet that I'm carrying today. Wouldn't mean anything to you. It's old and weathered. But this wallet at one time belonged to my dad who died 18 years ago. And I love my dad. And there's some things that belong to him that are very meaningful to me. Now, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to love the church. Because the Bible says in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for her. Now, folks, it is really important that you understand today that Jesus did intend to build a church. Because in some hip Christian circles, it's kind of the end thing to disassociate yourself from the local church. You'll hear people say, well, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not into organized religion. Or I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, but I'm not a part of the institutional church. Or you'll see little posters that say, Jesus, yes, church, no. In these people's minds, when the Bible talks about church, it's talking about some invisible universal body of people who belong to Jesus, but it's not talking about a local church with buildings and budgets and bureaucracy. In the book, The Gospel According to Starbucks, The author suggests, church for you may be just a small group of people who informally meet at the local coffee shop and you talk about Jesus. And you might might find more authentic fellowship and worship in that group than you ever would in a formal church. 
But the New Testament makes it clear when Jesus said, I will build my church, he was talking about a visible body with structure and definition. The word church in the original language was ecclesia, which meant people who were called out from the world. And it's used over a hundred times in the New Testament. Ninety times it refers to a local congregation. You see, the New Testament church was structured enough that there were elders who were to be the overseers and teachers who were to edify it. The church was visible enough that when one member suffered, the others were to suffer with it. When one member strayed, the others were to hold it accountable. It was visible and structured enough that they were not to forsake the assembling of themselves together. So the church in the New Testament was not just the universal body of believers, or it wasn't just a little informal group that occasionally hung out at the Starbucks. The church the local church with the very heart of the purpose of God. In fact, the New Testament knows nothing of an unchurched believer. Acts 2.41 says when people were saved, God automatically added them to the church. Let me quickly show you three symbols that the Bible uses to describe Jesus' inseparable relationship to the church. The first is in 1 Peter 2, 5, and 6 where the church is compared to a building established on a firm foundation. You, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, who is a chosen and precious cornerstone. You're the house. You're the building. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. You take the house off the foundation, it's going to collapse. The second analogy is Ephesians 5.23. Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Church is the body, Christ is the head. If there's decapitation, there's death. My favorite analogy is a groom who loves his bride. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Christ is the groom, the church is the bride. Now the, the groom loves the bride and sees her as perfect for a week or two. And the good news is when Jesus Christ looks at Parkview Church, he doesn't see your flaws. He sees you as washed by his blood. You're without blemish and perfect. John three twenty nine says the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. I had a wedding ceremony years ago in which the groom really loved the bride and it was a good thing because when she came down the aisle, she wasn't very attractive. Now, normally a very pretty girl, but of all days on her wedding day, she didn't look very good. And the reason is she's one of these people when she gets nervous, she bawls. I don't mean she just shed tears. She just sobs. The door is open, plate, here comes the bride. And you could hear her all the way at the end of the aisle sobbing. And her shoulders were throbbing. She got halfway down. You could see her face was all distorted. And tears were cutting black streaks of mascara down her cheeks, dropping little black droplets on her dress. I looked over to the groom, and he was crying too. And I understood why. (laughs) I could not get this girl to settle down in the wedding. She sobbed all the way through. So I hurried through. Finally, I got to the place where I said, you may kiss the bride. And the groom did something I've never seen before or since. Instead of taking her veil and lifting it back over her head and kissing her, he pulled the veil out, ducked up underneath it, kissed her, and then he pulled that veil back down over her face. But you know, that couple went on to a great honeymoon. 
that was years ago. They've had a wonderful relationship because the groom loved the bride and he saw beyond the tears and the distorted expressions and the stains and he saw her heart. And you better not trash his bride. Christ sees the church as his bride. He sees the heart cleansed by his blood. And the Bible says one day the groom is going to come for the bride. The Bible says the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know what the Bible calls that? It calls that the marriage supper of the Lamb. And you know what the Bible says the first thing the groom is going to do for the bride? He will wipe away all tears from her eyes. I think when Jesus Christ, the groom, comes for the bride and we see him, we're going to be so overwhelmed with emotion, we're going to be sobbing like babies. And he will wipe away all tears from our eyes. I love the church because it's the bride of Christ. Here's another reason I love the church. I love the church because I love the people in the church. Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon. This has been revealed to you by my Father in heaven. I'm going to use you as a leader in the church. Simon Peter's going to be a leader in the church? What a flawed human being he was. Wouldn't the first century comedians, the John Stewarts and the David Lettermans of the first century, wouldn't they have a field day making fun of Simon Peter? That's one of your leaders? Isn't that the guy who's supposed to walk on water almost drowned? That's one of your leaders? Isn't that the guy who boasted that he would die with Jesus and then denied that he ever knew him to a servant girl? Isn't that the guy who said he's the Messiah? And then a few minutes later he said, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. That's your leader? Yeah, Simon Peter is a leader. Jesus said, Simon, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now the purpose of a key is to open the door. And who is it on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, that preaches the first sermon and 3,000 Jewish people walk through the door and become a part of the church? Simon Peter. Acts 10, who is it that preaches the first gospel sermon to Cornelius and his family, a Gentile group, and they walk through the door, become a part of the church? Simon Peter. Jesus said, I'm going to give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is going to be loosed in heaven. It's interesting that he says the same thing two chapters later to all the disciples. I take it what he means there is that I'm going to so empower you with the Holy Spirit that when you speak or when you write, your words about Jesus Christ are going to loose people from their sins if they'll accept him, but they'll be bound forever if they reject him. But Simon Peter, though far from perfect, was a leader in the early church. The church people today aren't perfect, but they're some of the best people in the world. Now, I will admit, I've met some people in the world that I like better than some people in the church, but for the most part, The people in the church are the best people in the world because they have a higher standard that they're aspiring to. They want to be like Christ, so they become more generous, more moral, more compassionate as they grow older. Let's say that you're traveling with your family late at night, 11 o'clock at night, and you're going through an unfamiliar city, and you look down at your gas gauge and say, oh, I'm about out of gasoline. So you pull off the expressway, and to your chagrin, the only station there is closed. Now, to get back on the expressway, you've got to drive all the way around the block. And it suddenly hits you, this is a rough part of town. And to your horror, the car starts chugging, and you run out of gas. 
and you pull over to the curb, now your heart's really pounding. You wonder how you're going to protect your family. And you look up against the street lamp, you see the silhouette of three large men walking down the sidewalk toward you, and they're carrying something in their hand. Let me ask you, would you feel better as they got closer if you saw that they were carrying a wine bottle or they were carrying a Bible? If they just came from a bar or they just came from a Bible study? I dare say, if they just came from a Bible study, you'd breathe a sigh of relief. You might stop them and ask them if they would help you. Because you would conclude, if they came from a Bible study, they were not out to do you bodily harm. Now, that's no guarantee. But the odds are in your favor, aren't they? The best people in the world are people who know the Lord and are in church. I wish I had time to tell you about people from Southeast Christian Church that I knew over a 40-year period. Heather Bland, who was run over by a car when she was three years old, had all kind of internal injuries. She's had over 250 major operations in her lifetime. She's in her 50s now, but still has this faith in Christ, this spirit of joy. Jim Katina, an educator in our town, his beautiful wife, Vicki, got Alzheimer's when she was 58. In a year, she didn't know him. But for the last 12 years, he's cared for her himself. We had her funeral just two weeks ago. But he bathed her, dressed her, changed her, fed her, took her to the zoo several times a week because she loved animals, sang songs to her, read scripture to her, one of the best guys in the world to care for her. Or Butch Dabney. Butch Dabney was one of the founding elders of our church. And uh, he was a original song leader in our church. And he's just a funny guy, a spirit of joy. And the spirit of the leader became the spirit of the team. And our church, like yours, is a spirit of, has a spirit of joy. You know, one of the characteristics of great churches, they know how to laugh. Because we have this hope in Christ that can never be taken away. Well, Butch's spirit just kind of permeated our church. I was once teaching a men's Bible study on Saturday morning. And I said, I was teaching on death and dying. And I said, how many of you guys in here are over 70? A bunch of guys raised their hand. Bush raised his hand. I said, do you fear death more or less as you get older? All the guys said, oh, Bob, you fear death less as you get older. I said, why is that? And Butch said, because you got more friends in heaven than you got on earth. <laughs> Fisher Jones, who was 90 at the time, said, you know, Bob, I actually hope I die pretty soon. My friends are going to think I didn't make it. <laughs> But you pick up the newspaper and you don't read about Fisher Jones or Bush Dabney or Jim Katina or Heather Bland or Tim Harlow. You read about the sordid side of life. But the people in the church are some of the best people in the world. Some of you would say right now, some of the best people I know are in this room right now. Some of the closest people to me in the world right here. Maybe that's the way it ought to be. Because Jesus compared the church to the salt of the earth. And salt doesn't get much credit. You hardly ever get from the table and say, that was great salt. Didn't you think that's the best salt we've ever had? But I'm going to tell you the truth. I think Christians are the salt of this country. And we're probably what's keeping this country together today. You know? The Bible says that God would have spared Sodom and Gomorrah for 10 righteous people. And I really think that the reason God has not yet severely judged America for its transgressions and rebellion against him is there are people just like this all over the nation that are turning to him week by week and seeking to grow to be like Christ. I love the church. I love the people in the church. One other reason I love the church, I love the church because of its positive influence. 
Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And the gates of Hades, the gates of death and hell itself are not going to stop the church. When I first looked at this scripture, I prepared an entire point on the durability of the church. Because, I mean, here we are 2,000 years later and Satan has attacked the church. The world has criticized the church. We've mismanaged the church. And yet it still exists. It has withstood all of those assaults. But the more I looked at this, when Jesus said the gates of hell will not stop the church, the imagery is not one of defense, but of offense. Let's say, let's just imagine that the Chicago Cubs and the Chicago White Sox are in the World Series. This is just pretend. (laughs) And it gets down three games to three, gets down to the final game, the seventh game, going to take place at Wrigley Field, and tickets are all sold out, scalpers are having a field day. And I say to you, I don't have a ticket, but the gates of Wrigley Field are not going to stop me from that game. You don't picture somebody coming out here with a turnstile and hitting me over the head. You, the imagery is, I'm going to go get through those gates. I'm going to see that game. When Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades are not going to stop it. He's not picturing the church huddling in the upper room, withstanding the attacks of the world. He's picturing the church going out into the marketplace, right up to the gates of hell, and rescuing people. That's what the early church did. In Acts 2, says the disciples went out into the streets of Jerusalem, and Simon Peter stood up and raised his voice and said, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man of God, approved of God among you with miracles, wonders, and signs. But you, with the help of wicked men, have crucified him and slain him. But God has raised him from the dead. And now God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the Bible says when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter, What should we do? And Peter said, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people were rescued from the gates of hell from having crucified Christ. Now, some religious elite of that day felt really threatened by that. So they set up some gates. And they said, it is now illegal for you to talk about Jesus in public. We will arrest you, imprison you, persecute you, execute you if you don't keep silent. And Peter and John said, we've got to obey God, not man. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And even though they were arrested and persecuted, they continued to proclaim the message saying, we're not ashamed of the gospel. Acts 4 says there were 5,000 men in the early church, which meant there must have been 20,000 people. And soon afterward, historians tell us there are 200,000 Christians in Jerusalem. The gospel spread throughout the whole world. And ever since that day, When the church has boldly, lovingly proclaimed the message, the gates of hell don't stop it. You think about the influence of the church in the United States of America, where originally there were no gates. Now, America was not started as a Christocracy, but it was firmly founded on Judeo-Christian principles, religious freedom. President John Adams stated, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Now think about the influence that the church has had in America. Did you know 106 of the first 108 colleges were started by the church? Yale, Harvard, Princeton. Or look around your community. Who started the hospitals that are here? I'll guarantee you not the Atheist Society. 
You see Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, Christian hospitals. Who uh, funds the inner city missions that minister to the addicted and the homeless? Who starts the orphanages and the homes for the elderly? The church. Who consistently visits and conducts services for people in prison? People from the church. Who establishes the crisis pregnancy centers that help women in desperation? The church. Who teaches consistently the moral values that undergird business ethics in America? The church. When I was a little boy, long before the civil rights movement, I was taught to sing 1950s. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Don't buy into this idea that church of the past was totally racist. Not true. Or when Hurricane Katrina ripped through the Gulf Coast, you know who was there first? Didn't scrape any money off the top. You know who stayed there the longest? People from the church. And yet, in spite of this positive influence in our country, there are some powerful politicians that are now saying, but we're threatened by the church. We've got to put up some barriers. We've got to put up some gates. Don't post the Ten Commandments on the wall of this courtroom. Don't read the Bible in this classroom. Don't say Merry Christmas in this department store. Don't pray at this public function. And I think what we need are more Christians with some boldness, like Peter and John saying, we've got to obey God, not man. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And I guarantee you, if we will do that in a spirit of joy and love, the gates of Hades will not stop the church. Think about the influence of Parkview Christian Church. I wonder how many people are going to go to heaven someday because of this church. I wonder, I'm going to ask you to stand here in a second. If you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and you're headed for heaven someday, if you were baptized in this church, I just want to see who you are. Stand up right now. If you, you don't mind. Wow, look at that. Thank you. That's fantastic. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, that's just one service. Scores of people standing. If just, if just one person came to know the Lord here, if this church's influence just one, one person to the Lord, it'd be worth every dime you ever gave to this church. Every prayer you ever uttered, every hour you ever served, just one. But there are hundreds going to be in heaven someday because of the influence of this church. That doesn't speak of the total influence of this church. How many marriages do you think have been kept together because of the ministry of this church? How many Christians edified and encouraged to go back and do their best in their daily walk? How many kids kept off drugs? How many suicides prevented? How many missionaries supported? How many preachers have gone out from this place? How many souls, when they're really hurting, are comforted by the ministry here? You can never measure the influence of this church. I'm going to close out by showing you a picture of my home church. This is a picture of the first Christian church, Meadville, Pennsylvania, 1941. Now, really, this is kind of a sorry-looking bunch of people. (laughs) And this is the kind of church that people trash, and they say, what kind of difference could these people possibly make in the world? And this is Meadville. Anybody know where Meadville, Pennsylvania is? Okay, several of you. Not exactly the garden spot of the world. It's 40 miles south of Erie. I think it's the third highest snowfall of any city in America. Kind of a depressed area. I, I showed this picture to a bunch of preachers not too long ago. And uh, one of the preachers came up afterwards and said, Bob, I grew up in Meadville. I was in the eighth grade before I discovered that the Lord's Prayer was not deliver us from Meadville. 
But before you trace this church, let me tell you about the influence of some of the people in this church. On the front row is Sue Anderson. She was a church organist. She was married to Homer Anderson far on the far right. They may have been having some marital problems this day. I don't know what the reason was that they were standing together. Homer is a mailman, just salt-of-the-earth people there every Sunday. They have a daughter, Donna, who is now an executive with a missionary organization called Team Expansion, sending missionaries all over the globe. She has a daughter who's a missionary and a son, Tim Cole, the grandson of Homer and Sue, who is in charge of all the new church plants for Christian churches in the state of Virginia over the last decade and has done a terrific job. On the far right is Stanley Betray. He married a little girl in the front row, Mabel Betray. This picture is 1941, just before we go to war against the Japanese and the Germans. After the war was over, Stanley and Mabel felt called of God to go to Japan as missionaries to take the gospel to the enemy. There are Japanese people in heaven today. There are Japanese churches in Tokyo, Japan, because of First Christian Church, Meadville, Pennsylvania. In the middle are Edgar and Eva Pressy, very kind of unglamorous people. But Eva's holding in her arms a little baby, Arnold Pressy. Arnold Pressy is a preacher in North Carolina today. But when he was a little boy, he did not receive much discipline, and he was a holy terror. He was one of those kids, people say, that kid is going to burn this church down if somebody doesn't do something about him. My dad taught Arnold in the fifth grade. On the way home, he'd often say, Arnold Pressey's going to wind up in a penitentiary someday. You can just write it down. He's a preacher in North Carolina today. On the back row is Charles Ward, kind of a stern elder. Everybody's a little afraid of him. Charles Ward had a son-in-law who's a preacher. He's got a granddaughter, Dorothy Haddenham, who was a missionary to Alaska for many years. Three grandsons in ministry. On the front row are my mother and father. If you can see this picture clearly, you will note that my mother and dad are the only people in the entire picture smiling. (laughs) One of the reasons is they haven't had me yet. That's my uh, older sister, Roseanne, that they're holding, one of six children that my parents had. And uh, Roseanne grew up to be a really good Bible teacher. She was single all her life. I really wish you could have known my father. My dad was a 17th of 18 kids. His mother died when he was three. His dad was an alcoholic, coal miner. He he just terribly dysfunctional, non-Christian family. But he met my mother at age 20, who was a Christian. Gave his life to the Lord, never looked back. My dad worked in a zipper factory, Talon Zipper in Meadville, for 35 years. Scraped to get by with six kids. But one-tenth of every paycheck went to the church. When I was in the seventh grade, my parents helped start a new church in a little community where we were living. And uh, my dad loved that church. First one there, last one to leave. But one of, our early, one of our early preachers skipped town, leaving a lot of unpaid bills. And my dad was so concerned that our church was going to have a bad reputation in the community because the preacher didn't pay his bills. So my dad went to the bank, borrowed $2,500 of his own money, paid off all the preacher's bills, took a second job working in a sawmill to pay it back. Now, when you've got a dad like that, you're going straight into ministry, whether you want to go or not. (laughs) So I became a preacher. I've got a younger brother who's a preacher. I've got two sisters who are married to preachers. I've got one sister who's a black sheep. She married a deacon. But you've got people in your family that you're a little ashamed of. 
I think my parents have six grandsons who are preachers today. On the back row of this picture is uh, D.P. Schaefer, the preacher. D.P. Schaefer's son, Raymond Schaefer, became the two-term governor of the state of Pennsylvania. Served on President Nixon's cabinet for a while. I show people this picture and they'll say to me, man, that was a great influential church. Well, it wasn't a great church. It was just an average church, had troubles, never got beyond 180 people. But shortly after this picture was taken, they asked D.P. Schaefer, the minister, to resign because nothing was happening in the church. But look at 70 years later, the influence of that church all over the world. Here's my question for you, Parkview. Seventy years from now, when somebody looks at a picture of this church, what are they going to say about you after they quit laughing at the way you're dressed and the way your hair looks? Are they going to say, that's my granddad. If he hadn't been faithful to the Lord, I, I, I don't know where I'd be today. I, and my kids, we wouldn't be Christian. We wouldn't be going to heaven if it weren't for them. Or... That's the guy who taught my class when I was in fifth grade. He introduced me to the Lord. Or that's my mom. She was single, but she hung in there with the Lord. I can't tell you what a difference it's made. Here's my challenge to you right out of Scripture. Don't grow weary in doing good. In due season, you reap a harvest. If you don't give up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus loved the church so much he died for the church to cleanse us by his blood. and He sees us as his bride. Thank you for the influence of the church. That in the end, what goes on in this place is, Lord, it's, it's more important than what goes on at the state capitol or the university campus or the or Wrigley Field. And just as you gave yourself up for the church, help us to love it and to sacrifice for it, knowing that one day you'll say, well done, good and faithful servants. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.